0: This is the Mulligan's Podcast, a real estate podcast focused on the duo. We created this podcast to share the stories of real estate individuals who have built their business from the ground up or have lost everything and are working to get it back. I'm Hayden Wright.
1: I'm Austin Cole. And, and we, we are, are your hosts. hosts.
0: Today's episode is with Adam Balsinger from the Carolinas. Adam was an alcoholic and turned his life around completely using his entrepreneurial spirit. He's built a seven-figure real estate investment portfolio. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. Adam, we appreciate you being on the show, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. So let's get right into it. So Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind.
2: Uh, sure. So for those people that know me, I can be kind of long winded. So how much detail, uh, should I be providing your audience man, here? Man, as much as you want. Okay. Uh, so I've kind of always been entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, I've always been growing up. I was always envious of, of the people that knew exactly what they wanted to do. And, and, you know, the profession that they wanted to pursue, the person that was like, I want to be a, I don't know, teacher, firefighter, doctor, whatever. Uh, Cause I was always just like, I want to make a lot of money and uh, you know, not have to work until I'm 65. Like That was, that was me. Right. And so you know, I went to, I went to Penn state. I'm from the greater Philadelphia area originally, like out in the middle of nowhere uh, this little teeny tiny area called Douglasville, probably more cows than people. Um, but so uh, what's call it? So I went to Penn State and I, I pursued business uh, just because it seemed like if I wanted to make a lot of money and, and you know, that was like, know, that seemed like the thing that made sense. And um, so graduated, still had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I was a finance major to begin with. My dad was a, is a uh, retired CFO, CPA, you know, VP of finance, right? Like, um, and I was always pretty good with numbers and, and math. So I was like, oh, I'll just follow my dad's footsteps. He's done pretty well for himself. Both of my parents are the first ones that went to college, like growing up out in the middle of nowhere. Like I come from a pretty, like an extremely blue collar background, like grandfather worked landscaping until the day he died. Like when I would go and visit my grandparents as a kid, it was in a trailer park. Um, so you know, my parents kind of like put themselves through college, first ones in their family, um, so going from blue collar to kind of like middle class, um, you know, it, it gave me a, a, like literal visual representation that if you work hard and, and you do the right thing, like you can advance your, your place in life. Right. Um, but so I started out in finance and I hated it. Uh, I did an internship and I, I literally used to fall asleep at work during the internship. Like I would be struggling to like stay awake, you know? Um, so I changed majors. I switched over to, to marketing. Um, I, I really majored in partying my fucking ass off at, at Penn state. Um, I was in a fraternity, like my frat was actually in, um, one of the girls gone wild on campus videos. Um, no like the, I think it was, I think it was girls gone wild on campus two starts and it's at Penn State in at Halloween, which is like a crazy party weekend at Penn State. Um, and literally, it starts out at at the frat house that that I was a brother in. Um, so yeah, I majored in partying and blacking out. And um, so I graduated and, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was looking for marketing positions with a marketing degree, I was kind of like, Oh, like, I'll be I'll be involved in in, the company that helps to come up with the funny Budweiser commercials that aired during the Super Bowl. Um, Well, getting an entry-level marketing job at the time was not like you couldn't. Your your, your entrance into marketing was you needed sales experience. Uh, So I started pursuing sales. I didn't really ever want to be a salesperson or envision myself as a salesperson. uh, But I got linked up with a small business. Um, was run by a, a, a young woman, like mid 20s, who at that time in my life, like to me, was crushing it. You know, she's mid 20s, like had her act together, seemed really confident, well dressed, well spoken, drove a Porsche. And I'm like, that's my job, right? Because um, I just wanted to kind of surround myself with good people. You know, even at that kind of like professionally inexperienced stage in my life, I, I knew the value of surrounding myself with people that were kind of like where I, I wanted to be. Right. So the old cliche, your, your network is your net worth. I I almost kind of understood that like innately. Um, So this job guys was selling Verizon Fios, which is uh, at the time was only phone and internet. Uh, door-to-door residentially commission-based in the summer was when I interviewed there in the Philadelphia area which for those of your audience members that don't know it's humid as shit so I was out on my interview in like a black pinstripe suit right like young guy trying to trying to be dressed to impress and I'm like pitting out my suit jacket like it was that hot um, and I'm thinking like, this is ridiculous, right? There's no way I'm going to do this. And then I found out that the woman that ran the business started herself selling stuff door to door. And I was like, all right, well, like if, if she did it, I think I can do it. Um, so I started doing that. I wound up moving to New York from greater Philadelphia. I helped open up a, a new location, again, selling Verizon Fios door to door um, in Westchester County and Rockland County, uh, in New York, which is just above Manhattan, uh, or just above New York city, excuse me. I built a team, um, learned how to not only sell and and make a living on commission impulse commission-based door-to-door sales, knock, knock, knock. Hey, how are you? I'm here on behalf of Verizon, um, to building a team, teaching people how to do that, recruiting people, um, to sell stuff door-to-door commission-based, which is not an easy sell. Um, And wound up opening up my own business where I actually represented Verizon and and built a team selling stuff door to door, right? Um, So that was my first experience as an entrepreneur. And I loved it. I loved it. The ability to build a team and and I tend to get bored with stuff kind of easily, right? Like I am (laughs) your prototypical entrepreneurial personality, if if you've ever read Traction or, or uh, rocket fuel by gino wickman like i am a visionary 110 um so this was really cool to me right so i wound up i built a team there uh after a while i relocated to um what you might call it the detroit area uh representing at and i did that for a little while again door to door wound up relocating again to chicago where i was representing um quill so we were doing business to business sales of office supplies quill is like a warehouse subsidiary of staples um so we're walking in selling copy paper and trying to upsell printers and toner and like you name it right anything that they would use um representing culligan for a little while selling water filtration systems business to business that one was fun um Cause nobody wanted it. Right. So it was like, <laughs> that one was pretty cool. Cause when you talk somebody, when you actually sold it, it was like, yeah, nailed okay. it. Um, so, and then wound up representing a company by the name of Great Lakes Energy, uh, which was selling um, electricity. Right. And again, B2B. So at my highest point, I had like 37 commission based sales reps traipsing around Chicago, cold as shit in the winter. Uh, if you've never lived in Chicago, it's the first place I've ever lived in my life where I choked on cold air. Like the, you walk outside, the lake effect waxy in the face in February, it's friggin' freezing it. So, um, so I got pretty good at it. Right. Uh, but I was young, I was immature. Uh, we linked up because of my story that I put up on social about like my struggles with alcohol. So, Um, I was partying my ass off all the time. I was spending basically, I was blowing all the money that the company was making. Basically. Um, I remember on my birthday, just kind of willy nilly taking a bunch of people that worked for me out to a club and like spending all this money. Um, I put it all on like the company card, right? Like just, just stupid stuff like that. Right. Um, I got burned out after a while, felt like I wasn't making any progress. I shut that business down. Um, I wound up doing a couple odd sales jobs, relocated back to Philadelphia, um, was selling um, software for a little while. And, And that whole time, I was probably about a two, three year time period, like doing a bunch of different odd sales jobs. I hated all of them every minute of it, going from being an entrepreneur to working for somebody doing the same thing every single day, like, like ate it my soul, right. And That was, and I got into some pretty jacked up, like bad relationships at the time. People that um, didn't care about me the way that I cared about them. And those two things kind of happening at the same time, like my drinking, like off the rails. Um, So I've literally been arrested on four different occasions. um, Drinking dumb shit, drunk drunk off my ass, like arrested. Um, so it's weird, right? Because you hear all these different scenarios. Like I, I did like rehab after work. So like, I, I sought help for this like struggle that I, I had. Um, you know, I lied to myself for years that like it wasn't really that big of a deal and I could control it. So, um, and I never was able to, to kind of get it under wraps, but so, um, so anyway, this whole time I am really trying to figure out like what I was going to do. Cause I, I always wanted to go back to running my own business again. And somewhere along there, I kind of got bit by the real estate bug. And so while selling software, I wound up going to a house flipping like guru course, like 30, 40, I don't even remember how much it was, but it was like 30, 40 grand, something like that. Um, started flipping houses, um, left the the job that I had was flipping houses full time I flipped houses for a couple years um I was doing okay like I was paying bills and and putting food on the table so to speak right but I was never like I was never really doing volume I was doing four six houses a year something like that um and I was working all the time and it just like was super stressful so um, I was always trying to figure out how to do more volume. I, um, GC my own projects for a year thinking that I could save money on construction and that would allow me to get into more deals. Um, it didn't work that way. Uh, cause I'm not a GC, right? So while we were saving money on like, you know, on paper, Um, the projects took longer because I wasn't super efficient in GCing the projects. And to be perfectly honest, I absolutely hated GCing the projects because I felt like I was an adult babysitter. Um, For instance, I had to fire two guys for being like high on, I think probably heroin. Like I showed up at Mm -hmm. the job site and it was, they were both like zombies. Um, And coincidentally, the one guy had been on the roof like three days prior I was like, dude, like what is wrong with you? It's, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. And like, this is coming from somebody that was like a friggin' total full on alcoholic at the time. Like I wait until night at least to like my life up with alcohol. Like, you know, what are you doing? Um, coincidentally, both of those guys are now dead. I've heard they they both OD'd and died, um, heroin overdose. So, so yeah, anyway, um, I, I hated GC in my own projects. Um, I started to, I was like, okay, I bought a couple of deals off of wholesalers at the time. Um, and a lot like, it was like, if they, these guys can figure out how to get direct seller, I can too. Started doing direct marketing. The idea was I was going to feed my own fix and flip business. Um, got a couple of leads I didn't like, wholesaled them, kind of limped my way through. I didn't really know the process, understand the process really well. Uh, My first wholesale deal, I made like $472, like something pathetic, not worth the time and the effort. (laughs) Actually, the end buyer was in prison. Um, I had to get, we had to get his mom as POA uh, so that she could sign and, and close and take money out of his account to be able to close the deal. Uh, Not easy to do all that. Like I was calling prisons to like find out if he was there and I had to go through his like case officer or whatever Um, disaster train wreck. Um, So anyway, so I, but I wound up a couple wholesale deals in doing a 30 K wholesale deal. And, you know, in Philadelphia, um, I was using none of my own money to fix and to do fix and flips. I was trying to make 30 to 40 grand on a fix and flip. So, I was like, well, wait a second, take out all this debt and have my name attached to it and be responsible for all of it in the event that something goes wrong. Manage construction. Philadelphia is an old city, so it's a gut renovation on pretty much everything. So, it's like a six month process at a minimum. So, most of our deals were taking like six months to 12 months to, to turn them into actually sell them. Um, So, okay, I can make 40 grand in 12 months, or I can make 30 grand, not have to manage contractors, which I hated and turn it over my name. I don't even have to close on the property. So it was like a really easy, easy decision. I transitioned my business to wholesaling. Uh, That was probably about five years ago now. Um, I still am a partner in that wholesaling business. Uh, So we wholesale in the greater Philadelphia area. Uh, my role in that company is that of the visionary. Um, so it's myself, my partner. We've recently just brought on a um, head of operations, a COO. Uh, we have presently two virtual assistants that handle a lot of the data, backend, all that stuff. Uh, we've got a lead specialist who is essentially qualifying um, sellers, you know, is this somebody we can potentially do business with or not? Got three acquisitions people and one dispositions person. Um, we'll have our best year this year by far. We actually already are having our best year this year by far. The past two years were a struggle um, with trying to scale. Right, like hiring people is not an exact science. It's just something that you kind of you figure it out as you go. Who's the right fit? Um, and you know, a lot of times you have to grow as a leader right? The person that gets you to doing X amount of revenue with you and one other person kind of doing all the work is not the same person that is running a seven-figure wholesaling business, right? So a little bit of personal growth there that has to happen. Um, And then I guess about four years ago, I started pursuing multifamily. So, you know, the whole idea with me getting into into, um, real estate in the first place was passive income, rental real estate, I built up a portfolio of like 18 doors and was expecting to make a lot more money running those 18 doors than I really was. (laughs) Um, And like spoiler alert for any of your audience members who are thinking like, I want to build a a portfolio of single family rental houses for passive income. There's nothing fucking passive about running a single family portfolio. There's not. Um, Even if you have third-party property management, right? Oh, hire a third-party property manager. They'll do everything. Mm, Maybe. (laughs) My experience uh, was that you have to stay on top of your property manager in order to get them to make your properties perform. Uh, So they help for sure, but they it's not passive. And so it was like, all right, this is a lot more work than I anticipated, and it's less income than I anticipated. I'm going to need more doors faster. Uh I used to joke around that if I was continuing on the path that I was on I would be dead by the time I was financially free with single family houses. So um you know I never like wavered in in real estate. I believe that real estate is a phenomenal vehicle to generate passive income, cash flow and build wealth. It was just how do I do it faster? And that led me to multifamily I paid like 50 grand for a uh, multifamily syndication guru to learn how to, to do multifamily syndication. Because again, I, I didn't have a ton of money at the time. Uh, so it was how do I buy large apartment buildings with little to none of my own money in the deal? Boom, syndication. Um, I met my my business partner at the same guru training. Uh, we linked up. We started doing multifamily, like I said, about four years ago, give or take. Um, today we own three deals. Um, it took us about two years to get our first deal. Uh, so for any of your audience members that are interested in, uh, being a syndicator, get ready for a long road to your first deal. I'm not saying it, everybody happens that way, but it was, it was a long bumpy path to find our first deal for us. Um, so, you know, but now, uh, three deals, We've got, it's 204 doors, 15, 16 million assets under management. Uh, We're closing on another 130 unit deal uh, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, which is August. What is it? Today's the 14th that we're recording this. So that's like what? The 17th? 17th, yeah. Um, And then we're working on getting another 64 unit deal closed up. We ran into some issues during, um, leading up to settlement. We... (laughs) We discovered that the property is a LIHTC property, low-income housing tax credit, and the seller didn't know. Hmm. How that even happens, I I don't know. Uh, But so that threw a little bit of a wrench into the financing, right? You were going in thinking it's not LIHTC, and then it is, and it not only is it LIHTC, but it's out of compliance, obviously, because the seller didn't know. So we've had to like, you know, um, finagle that deal a little bit. So we're probably 30, 45 days out from closing that one. But um, very shortly, we'll we'll uh, have five assets, about 400 doors, about like 26, 27 million assets under management. So um, I'm a partner in both of those companies, the wholesaling business and the syndication company.
0: Wow. Okay. I
2: told you I was long-winded.
0: No, that, that was good. I mean, you answered the first five of our questions and that, yeah. um, we, we try to talk Damn as it. little as possible. Yeah, you did great. So uh, backing up a, a little bit, you got into the business through fix and flips, then wholesaling, then multifamily. Uh, Would you advise uh, someone starting out to go directly into multifamily? just jump in that gap there, just knowing the fact that they're not going to retire off of single family houses and it's not worth all the
2: work? Uh, Well, so I have a lot of conversations like this, right? Because I'm pretty active on social media and I think that, while there are some really good people out there that are aiming to educate and help people get into multifamily, the reality of the mentor, coaching, and guru business is that a lot of people in that business don't do real estate anymore. Um, a lot, in a lot of instances, the guru business, the mentor, the coach business is more lucrative than real estate is from a cash right now perspective, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of, I think, rosy scenarios that are being painted out there. Uh, And I think that a lot of people get sold by this instant gratification idea. And it's, from my personal experience, bullshit. Mm. There is no overnight millionaire it doesn't happen, right? All like in order to grow a successful business, it takes time. Um, Any of the entrepreneurs for any of your audience that follows really successful entrepreneurs online on social media, um, there's a couple that I'm a really big fan of. And every one of the guys that I follow that um, I actually care what their opinion on things are Almost every single one of them says that it took them five, six, 10 years to feel like they really hit the ground and like really got momentum going in their business and that it was a struggle, a serious struggle during that first, you know, however many year time period. Well, that ain't sexy. Mm -hmm. Who's signing up to buy that guru program if you're told that you're four years away from making any money? And oh hey, by the way, you're gonna have to keep your nine to five and you're gonna have to work 15 hour days for during that four year time period, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the truth. Ain't nobody buying that course. Not right. Well, maybe one or you know, (laughs) a a small group of people are gonna buy that course, right? Right. So I think that it all comes down to what somebody's what somebody likes and what somebody's end goal is. So for me, the Burr strategy. Doesn't make sense because I am a real estate entrepreneur, right? I'm looking to build wealth, but also pay my bills today through real estate. So if I'm making $100, $200 a door, which on bigger pockets they'll tell you is a good deal, I need a fuckload of properties to make even $10,000. I need like a thousand doors to make $10,000. Do you have any idea how much time, effort, It takes to number one, acquire those properties, but then manage them effectively. Now, but so here's the flip side. If I am working a nine to five that I like, and I am not comfortable with keeping all of my money uh, in the stock market, my like retirement nest egg money, then Burr is a good strategy. Right? Because I can acquire... 10, 20, 30 houses over a 10, 15, 20 year time period so that by the time I'm 65 and I'm ready to retire, I have a decent little portfolio of properties that are fully paid off and now I'm making some good income and I own the asset, right? So these questions, while they're good questions, they're very personal questions too. So I run a multifamily meetup in Charlotte and I get a lot of questions. How do I get started? What's your end goal? Well, you know, I'm thinking that I want a wholesale and I'm going to wholesale and that's going to help me bring in money that will allow me to leave my job so that I can do multifamily. And I'm like, that's stupid. That's dumb because it's hard to build a business So I'm going to, in my free time, I'm going to build a wholesaling business so that I can make money so that I can build another business later. That doesn't make any sense. Focus on building the end goal business while you're working your nine to five and skip that wholesale step, right? Hey, I'm thinking about building a wholesaling business because I want to run a wholesaling business. Okay, cool. Then build the wholesaling, right? So like, it it totally depends on what the end goal is. Um, I do think that it's, it's important for your audience to know if they are pursuing multifamily, that they need to understand that syndication with how competitive the industry is right now, um, you're not making a ton of money until you start to sell deals, until you start to dispose of deals. So just be prepared. I think that Multifamily syndication is a phenomenal way to build wealth. And I believe it's one of the fastest ways to build wealth, but it's going to take a couple of years to get to that point. And you're not going to make a ton of money during those first few years. Once you start selling deals, if you're picking up a deal, two, three deals a year, when you start selling them, you've got some nice income coming in. Right. Um, but you're like, You're, you're picking the meat off of the bone during those first couple years. So I don't know, Hayden, if that really answers your question, but that's kind of my perspective.
0: Right. No one does that. I I think that makes sense. Um, Okay. Awesome. I have a
2: question on the, uh, see, obviously you
1: mentioned uh, you took a guru for the multifamily and then you did one for the house flipping. Uh, Is that something you recommend to somebody getting into multifamily is taking a $50,000 guru course or with the free knowledge that's out there finding a mentor or something?
2: So, so I think it depends on the person again, right? So I think there's a lot of good information out there right now that you could, if you want to, you could find a mentor, you could find a coach and you could bypass going the route that I went in terms of the guru, um, I think that in a lot of cases, your go for your gurus. What you're paying, you're really not getting. I don't know that I got fifty thousand dollars in value from that guru training. But at the same time, through that guru training, I met my business partner. I met my first key principal. The key principal is the person that signs on the loan for a syndication, right? I met my first key principal at that guru training, I met my second key principal at that training, right? So every deal that I've done so far has been with somebody that I met and built a relationship with through that guru program. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, they're a ripoff. It's a scam, right? Well, those are the same people that buy a course for $3,000 and then never open it, Mm -hmm. Right there is no quick path to success. You can't like, there is no magic pill, right? So people always send me messages. Oh, how do I do this? And it's like, well, you need to put in the work. And what they're really looking for is to be plugged into something that they can jump on and they can become wealthy overnight. Like that shit just doesn't exist. Um, So I think that any of those things, mentor, coach, guru, I think they're all valuable. And I think if the goal is to build a business and to generate your literal income, your sole income, your core business, that this is something that you see being a path you can use to retire yourself and take care of your family, spend money. And get a coach or get a guru or get a mentor. It's going to speed up the process from somebody trying to cobble together a bunch of free pieces of information online. Because let's not forget, a lot of the free information that you find out there online is put out by a guru and it's a hook for you to buy their course. Mm -hmm. So a lot of instances, you're able to learn just enough to not really know enough to do a deal. Mm -hmm. If -hmm. that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Um, I guess we could kind of, yeah, go ahead.
2: So one thing awesome that I want to throw in there, um, guys, I have people hit me up all the time. Hey, would you be my mentor? Um, I have nothing better to do, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't know this person and they send me, uh, you know, they slide into my DMS like, Oh, Hey, I saw your post. I'm looking for a mentor. Um, I'd like to take you to lunch to pick your brain. No. No, I'm not fucking interested, right? And then people get pissy with me when I say no. Like, I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. You sent me a DM. whoop the fucking do right? So no, I'm not going to mentor you. And fuck no, I'm not going to mentor you for free. I run two companies. I have an 11-month-old daughter. I have a family. I take my fitness and my health seriously. Like, I'm a busy guy. I'm not just like, would you ever DM Elon Musk and be like, hey, I'd like to pick your brain. Let me take you to lunch. Can you be my mentor for free? What? No, fuck no, he's not going to do that. It's crazy that anybody even thinks that this would, Mm -hmm. would make sense. Now, with that said, there's a lot of things that I'm not great at. And I, as an entrepreneur, love the idea of a value exchange. So if somebody were to take some time and look at my social content, research my two companies, what I do for a living and reach out and say, hey, Adam, I happen to, you know, start with a compliment. Everybody likes to be complimented. Hey, Adam, great content. I saw this piece of blah, blah. That's how we linked up. Right. I hey, I saw you. your story about your struggles with alcohol. It'd be great if we could. Awesome. Yeah, man, that sounds great. Right. Um, hey, Adam, great. Blah, blah, blah. I noticed that you do this. I am really good at this and I think I could potentially provide some value to you here. By the way, I'd love to get into real estate. It would be awesome if I could ask you a couple questions um, after I bring value to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, I, 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 you're absolutely right. I do need help in that one particular area. So yeah, let's link up. Let, let, I'll actually like, Oh, I'm going to buy you lunch. Like I don't give a fuck it's $15. <laughs> So I would actually pay for lunch for that meeting, right? Like, because here's somebody that's taken time and researched me and figured out how they can bring value to me. Like what? I'm just supposed to bring value to you because you sent me a DM? doesn't even make any sense. Um, So don't do that to anyone. None of us like it. Nobody likes it. Anybody that like has a following that puts out content on a regular basis, we all say the same thing when it comes to this. Oh, Hey, I'd love to, I'd love to be mentored by you. How can I add value to you? Oh, what now I have to figure out how you're supposed to add value to me. Like fucking figure it out yourself. You're going to give me a job. I got to teach you how that you're going to help me like it. So anyway, sorry. Rant over. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) Uh, I
1: guess we could kind of rope it back to the, uh, your, so your first deal, uh, you said Mm -hmm. it was
2: four years after you took that course.
1: Is that correct? Two. About
2: about two years, so it took us about two years to get our first deal.
1: Uh, How did you go about finding that deal? Was it uh, just through a broker, or uh, what was your means of finding deals
2: then? Yeah, so every deal that we've syndicated so far has come through a broker. Okay, Uh, some have been on market, others have been off. Um, We're starting to kind of kick the tires on um, doing some more direct seller marketing, but We play where where we have had the most success is the 50 to 150 unit space. Um, Now, where we really want to be is 100 units to 300 units. But the market is insanely competitive and there are institutional buyers that are throwing hard money at 100 units and up day one. For those of your, you know, for for your audience that doesn't know what hard money is, that means non-refundable. So there are hedge funds out there throwing 1% of the purchase price on a $10 million property, hard day one, at contract signature, boom, here's my earnest money deposit, It's non-refundable day one. And so it takes some serious cojones to do that, Right we are not a hedge fund. (laughs) I am not willing to to have the potential to lose that much money right now where I am in my business to play in that space. And so we started to realize how competitive that space was and that we were simply not going to be able to compete with those bigger institutions. So we actually kind of ratcheted down the size of, of the asset that we wanted to, to, to acquire, which is how we landed in the 50 to 150. And actually the first three deals that we did were in the 50 to 100 unit mm-hmm. space. The first 100, the first 100 plus deal that we're going to close is the one that we're going to close on Tuesday, 130 doors.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, so we're playing in that space, right? We had met a key principal through that guru. And, um, we had looked at a couple deals with this individual where he was going to sign on the loan. We had been in highest and best in a couple deals. So my partner, we were, we were really searching in the Carolinas, North Carolina, South Carolina, we're both based out of, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, MSA. We actually both relocated here at separate times, me from the greater Philadelphia area, him from from Brooklyn, um, as we're targeting this market. But so we lost out on every single one of those deals. Our key principal was located in Atlanta, and he had built up a portfolio of about 2,500 doors that he had uh, at that moment. And he actually hit us up and said, hey, guys, I just saw this 92-unit property that hit the market, Uh, I happen to know the seller. Um, I just bought a couple deals that were developed by the same developer of this 92 unit. And he was like, but look, I got to be honest. I'm not super interested in running a 92 unit deal by myself right now. Like I have 2,500 doors. Like this is small potatoes for me. So he literally threw us that lead. We would have never known about that deal had it not been for him. And we probably would not have landed the deal had it not been for his reputation because we were out of highest and best. We were the lowest offer, Mm. but he had experience with that asset type Uh, seller knew who he was because he'd been gobbling up properties all over the Atlanta area. So again, that just goes to the power of networking and building good relationships. Like literally he threw us a bone, honestly.
0: So, now you mentioned that you were looking in those areas right now. What are some of your other criteria?
2: So, we are B and C and B and C, right? So, B and C asset, B and C areas. And really, we have the most success in the C neighborhoods. So, part of I think getting going in this space is realizing where you can be competitive. So if you're a new syndicator and you've never done a deal and you're by yourself and you don't have a sponsor or a key principal, you're never going to make You're never going to get any traction if you're targeting 200 doors and up. Mm -hmm. Right. You can try and try and try and try, but credibility, track record and performance is something that you need for a broker to take you seriously right? So you've got to be aware, right? Self-awareness is really, really important. It's something that a lot of people don't have. You've got to be self-aware to realize where you can be competitive. So because of the returns that we want to give our investors and because we underwrite conservatively, now everybody in the industry says that they underwrite conservatively, Um, they don't. I've been on a lot of people's webinars on deals that we've passed on because we couldn't make the numbers work. Um, And they're showing returns that I'm like, I know that we are nowhere close to those projections. So they're doing some things. They're looking at that deal with some rosy, some rosy colored glasses on. Right. So, um, so yeah, CNB in CNB is where we have the most success 50 to 150 doors. Um, the Carolinas are our, our primary markets. We also look in Georgia. We just started looking in Florida last year, end of last year. Um, as of right now, we are not looking at really heavy value add plays. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the popular thing right now is value add, value add, value add, right? Well, most people think of a value add as well, I'm going to sink $5,000, $10,000 per door, and I'm going to increase rents by $150 to $250, right? Well, we've been able to find deals where with standard turns, we're able to push rents $75 to $150. So this is where having a strategy and being able to articulate that strategy is really important. So could there be a better return for doing a heavy value-add play, $5,000, 10000 per door? Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, so maybe that person is providing their investors an 18 to 20% annualized rate of return. That's a good return, right? Well, if we can go in and not sink, to $10,000 a door into the property, and we can still push rents, we can get maybe 16 to 18% average annualized rate of return for our investors. The return is a little bit smaller, a little bit less, but it's way less risky. Mm -hmm. Materials are really expensive right now. Labor is really expensive right now. I've renovated, I've flipped a bunch of houses. There's a lot of things that can go wrong when you're in the middle of a renovation. So you could be budgeted for $7,500 a door, but you could discover during your renovations oh shit, okay, we've got to do this extra thing that we hadn't anticipated. And now it's $10,000 per door. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of risk that people take on when they're doing these heavy value plays, especially if they're new in the game. Asset management is the most important part of a successful syndication. It's not finding it. It's not getting the debt. It's not getting the equity. It's none of that. It's asset managing the deal. And so if somebody's never done a deal before and they've never asset managed a deal before, do you think they are really well-equipped to manage a large renovation like that? No, No, they don't know what the hell they're getting into, right? So experience level is another thing that adds risk to that heavy Mm -hmm. value add play. The other thing that adds risk to that is typically you are looking to change your tenant demographic when you're putting that type of capital into a property. There's an unknown there. Yes, you can research rental comps. Yes, you can do a lot of research. You can look at migration. You can look at all that stuff. But there is still an extra um, component or piece of risk if you're looking to take a property from a C-class property. So it's it's extra risk, you know, the way that we view it in kind of three different pieces, risk, risk, risk. And so for 2%, doesn't seem worth it to us. So... That's really what we look at. So we're looking for more operational value plays, uh, properties where the market rent is just low for the area. So our second deal was an off-market deal in a tertiary market in South Carolina, Sumter, South Carolina, not where Fort Sumter is located. By the was way, but I asked that. Yeah, I assumed.
0: You're right. I was thinking the same thing.
2: Yeah, you and I were both wrong, Hayden. Um, <laughs> It is a military town, but it's not Fort Sumter. Um, but so we're touring the property with a seller, um, our broker, and the seller's property management company. And property's like 80% occupied. This was pre pandemic. And we're driving out there. We're driving through the absolute middle of nowhere in South Carolina from Charlotte to get there to tour this property. And I'm thinking like my partner is going to kill me and leave me for dead. Uh, because it was literally nothing around, like no cell phone reception. I didn't even know there were areas in the country that had no cell phone reception anymore. Um, so I'm like kind of annoyed. Like, what the fuck are we driving out here to look at this property for? Like, this thing is going to be terrible. It winds up being phenomenally located, like two blocks from the Sumter Mall, McDonald's, um you know, Chick fil A. Um, all of these places that are attractors, Starbucks, all these places are super close to the property. Like standing in the parking lot, I could hit McDonald's, uh, with a baseball and I used to be a second baseman, which means (laughs) I have a noodle arm. Um, they don't put the people with the best arm at second base. (laughs) Um, so we're like, what the hell's, and the property's in good condition. It was, it was a B class asset. That's our only B class asset, by the way um b-class asset you know like 80s build it's not ultra modern but it's a b-class property right I was like, why is it 80 percent occupied it doesn't make sense so as we're touring the property i asked the property manager like hey how are you marketing for vacant units um the print newspaper
0: are you kidding me
2: the print newspaper was how they were advertising vacancies um they also put up vacant units on um their property management website. So you would have to go to their property management website in order to find this particular property or look in the Sumter newspaper. (laughs) Wow. And so, of course, they don't have a lot of occupancy there, right? And so because they're not stabilized and because they only have 80% occupancy, basic supply and demand, right? If you don't have enough people coming in to tour the property, you can't charge higher rents. So, the property was at like six hundred and fifty dollars average rent. We've done standard turns, and we're at eight and eight fifty right now. Huh. Literally, right? No major value add play. We've sunk some money into the property, just little deferred maintenance items here and there. Um, but there, those deals are out there. You just have to be patient. Right. You got to know what you are looking for.
0: Right. I got you. So, where do you see your companies going in the next three to five years? What are some of your your goals there?
2: Um, so the wholesaling business, I want to be the biggest wholesaler in, in Philadelphia, um, which is saying a lot because it's a pretty big city. Yeah. So we should be able to do $3 million in revenue in Philadelphia b- by itself. So once we get to a point where we're cranking out, we're doing two and a half, three million $3 in revenue in Philadelphia, we'll expand us into some other markets. Um, but Philly's got a ton of opportunities. So we're going to continue to grow that business. Um, in the syndication space, we are going to continue to acquire new deals. Next year, the goal is going to be to add a 1,000 doors uh, to the portfolio. Um, that company, your audience members might think that this sounds crazy, um, but the ultimate goal with that business is a $1 billion assets under management. Wow. And I think we'll be able to get there in the next five, five seven years, somewhere there.
0: Really? So what are you doing to scale it so quickly?
2: Um what well, it hasn't been quick
0: right, right? i guess I mean, yeah right
2: we're four years in right now and we've got you know we're about to have 27 million but so the the syndication space is so much about track record so we've been playing in that 50 to 100 unit space building up a track record there once we get to a certain point and this is already starting to happen our track record will allow us to play in bigger deals right and then so you just continue to grow, and you continue to scale in that same way. So rather than chasing 200 units and striking out every single time, it was like, okay, we'll get there. But let's be smart about this. And let's build our track record up to a point where brokers are going to trust that we can actually get those deals done. So as we continue to build out our investor base, um, we're also beginning to now that we're going to we're actually under LOI right now on the ver- first deal that we bought, the one in the Atlanta MSA, mm-hmm. we bought that for 4.876 and we're under LOI for 7.125. So what is that like $2.3 million? We've increased the value in that property. and We've owned it for uh, not even two years yet. End of September will be two years that we've owned that deal. Um, but so you start to develop this track record and then, institutional investors will start to look at us as um, a potential partner. So we've talked to a couple family offices, family offices for for your audience that doesn't know is a wealthy family that has somebody managing their money for them. It's typically a hundred million dollars or more. And generally those family offices are looking for good operators that they can do consistent deals with when you've got a hundred million dollars that you need to manage you want to find people that you know they're doing good work. You can just stroke checks to the same couple groups over and over and over again, right? So, But most family offices won't touch you if you have never gone full cycle on a deal before. So full cycle, bought it, operated it, sold it, right? So when this Atlanta deal closes, that will begin to open up a whole new... Um, potential group of investors that we can work with, family offices, institutional um, institutional people, right? And then so when we have that kind of bigger, deeper pocketed capital behind us, we can start pursuing much larger deals and we can be real players in it, right? What sounds more uh more like a sure thing if you're a seller or a broker hey uh you know we've done four deals we own 26 million you know 26 million dollars worth of real estate and we're going to raise all the equity when you accept our offer versus we're going to be the operators but we're partnered with this family office they've got 30 million in the bank right now and they're going to finance our equity here's the proof of funds mm-hmm. we just need a yes they're going with the ladder every single time, yeah. right? Because the money's in the bank. It does, I could have done a hundred deals and raised the equity every single time. And they're going to go, well, you're bound to fuck it up one of these times and not be able to close. You're going you're gonna to go raise the money. The money's already over here. Right. We, you, lose that, you lose that deal to the institutional buyer every single time because they've got the money in the bank.
1: All right, All right. so uh, going back to like uh, mistakes learned and lessons learned, what's the biggest one? that you've made and what lesson did you learn from that mistake? Uh,
2: so mistakes are mistakes should be celebrated first Mm -hmm. and foremost. We all make mistakes. Nobody out there is perfect. And the best way to learn is through making mistakes. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm stubborn. So I typically have to make the same mistake like two or three (laughs) times before I I learn my lesson from it. Uh, case in point, my struggles with alcohol, I got four (laughs) times before I stopped drinking, Um, but so that, I mean, from like Mm -hmm. a sheer, just life perspective, my struggles with alcohol has been the biggest lesson that I've learned, um, in terms of the life that I want to live. And that, you know, there's a lot of people that struggle with alcohol and drugs that never get past it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They struggle with it their entire life until the day that they die. And it's sad and it's unfortunate. Um, But, you know, it takes some real discipline and some real, in my opinion, growth. Um, Some long, hard looks in the mirror about why I was doing that Mm -hmm. with my life, right? what the fuck is going on that I feel it's so necessary to drink to excess the way that I would like the reality is, is that there's something deep down that you're trying to numb. Mm -hmm. So what is that? And how do I adjust my life to no longer need to numb anything? Right. I was in shitty and fucked up relationships that made me ultimately question like my value and my self-worth. I was doing something that I thought was going to bring me happiness, but wasn't. And I felt kind of trapped, right? Like so many people out there feel trapped in their nine to five. Like you don't have to live your life that way. Mm -hmm. Just change it. It sounds so simple, but it's like, literally if you don't like something about your life, just fucking Change it. The person that you were, you can be 40 and miserable. Joe Rogan talks about this, and I actually listen to this on a pretty regular basis. He's got a YouTube video up that's Joe Rogan, be the hero of your own story. Mm-hmm. You can be the total piece of shit, dickhead that's hate, you know, everybody in your life hates, and you hate yourself from the day that you were born until you're 40. That's all in your past. You can wake up tomorrow and be a different person. Mm -hmm. It just takes some discipline to not go back to that old person. Right. So there's a lot of strength that I've gained um, during that experience in, you know, kind of overcoming my struggles with alcohol. Um, And it's something that then when you're strong in one area of your life, it's very easy to then be strong in other areas of your life. That strength carries over it makes you realize that you're not a victim and that you can control your own future um and that if you make some changes and you just choose to act a little bit differently oh i want to drink just don't have one mm-hmm. it sounds so simple and like there i'm sure there's people that will listen to this that are struggling with alcohol like, oh, it's easy for you to say uh yeah it fucking is easy for me to say because i did it right for me, the biggest challenge was if it's if it was in my house, it was going to be drank. So what's the solution? Just don't buy it. Just don't have it in your house. You're walking down the street. There's the liquor store. Just don't go in. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need it. Like, no, you fucking don't. You don't need it. You don't. What's more important, right? So that's really the biggest lesson uh, and the biggest mistake that I made was just allowing my life to spiral out of control. Um, Like I was going to court. um, I had been arrested for a second DUI, asleep at the wheel, passed fuck out at the wheel, at a traffic light, and was then arrested for something else alcohol-related, not driving after my second DUI, which I was facing 90 days in jail for, um, the decision was not, Adam, you're a fucking alcoholic and you need to get this under control. It was, well, I'll just stop drinking and driving. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, what the, like that it was it made <laughs> yeah. sense to me at the time, right? Um, but then, so what really happened was I would black out even worse because now there was no, like, I have to get behind the wheel and drive home. Mm. And it was just, I was just arrested for being a zombie doing dumb, drunk shit. So I'm like going to court for one thing and I get arrested for something else. Like it was just, dude, it was ridiculous. Like it got really bad. Like I was arrested, um, in like my twenties, like mid twenties, but then the second, third and fourth time were in like a three year time period, like bam, bam, bam. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was that fourth time. I was like, okay, like this is, this is bad. I gotta do something about this.
0: Um, fourth time's a charm. Well,
2: <laughs> So I was going to ask,
0: uh, you know, if, if you had one thing to take away, you wanted the audience to take away, but I think that answers it well, unless
2: you wanted to add something else to that. Um, no, I, so, so I, I still spend money on personal development. Mm-hmm. And, um, so my coach right now, one of my coaches talks a lot about like, what do you want? And a lot of times we tell ourselves we want certain things, but we don't really know like why or what we truly want. So I want to do this because of what, right? So you have a lot of people who are are really doing things because they have this kind of shorter medium-term goal, but that shorter medium-term goal is not congruent with their long-term goal, right? So- I I started out by saying I wanted to make a lot of money and I didn't want to work my ass off until I was 65, right? So what I realized with my fix and flip and early on in my wholesaling business was that I had succeeded in creating something that could make me a good amount of money, but it was also a full-time, really, really, really stressful job. And so that was not the goal right? I would right. rather make less and work less and be able to hang out with my family and control my own schedule. Now I'm, d- I'm going to work until the day that I die because I'm an entrepreneur. Like that's just the way that my mind works. I will right. never like fully retire because I'll be bored as shit after <laughs> like a week or two. Um, but I can be the, the visionary and I can I can come up with whatever it is And I can assemble a team that is going to help execute that vision, which enables me to really focus on and do what I'm good at, which is the vision and the pivoting. And okay, based on this, it looks like we need to adjust over here in order to be able to get to it. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I'm good at. It's like, it's like chess, but like the game of life. That shit's fun to me. So. I think it's really getting crystal clear with what you truly want in your life. And if you don't, you're never going to be happy because you're always going to be chasing something that you think is going to make you happy, but that like really isn't. You hear all these people and people chasing material success and they get it. And they're like empty inside because they were, they, they didn't really know what they wanted and they were chased, spent all this time chasing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm.
0: It's really good. So now you mentioned that, uh, you know, there's some things you aren't so good at. What are a couple of those things and you know, how could a listener perhaps, you know, fill in that gap If you. If you understand what I'm asking here, how could they add value to you?
2: Yeah. So the biggest thing that I am, am focused on right now is, um, so we always need more deals, always need more deals. Um, so, You know, we have two guys that are like apprentices of ours, right? So my business partner, Charles, I'm investor relations in my syndication business, um, InvestorBoardroom.com. If you're ever interested in learning more about uh, potentially investing, Uh, we really focus on working with entrepreneurs uh, because I am an entrepreneur myself. And I was looking for ways to generate passive income as an entrepreneur. Uh, And so that is really our like perfect investor. Right. Um, But so my partner, Charles is acquisitions for us. um, And he's also asset management. So he is doing a lot on a regular basis. He can only really look in and has time to look in North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, We have an apprentice basically that looks for deals in Georgia. He'll get a piece of any deal that we do in Georgia where he finds the deal and he underwrites the deal. Same thing for the guy that we have looking for deals for us in Florida. Um, We've taught him, right? um, How to vet, how to work with, how to build relationships with brokers. And then if he chooses to stay with us in, in an acquisitions capacity, awesome. If he chooses to take that experience, um, once he gets a deal uh, to his name, right, he's on the GP side where we come in and we help him execute the deal, then he can go run his own business, do his own deals if he wants to, right? Like it's the truest definition of win-win. We're helping him yeah. to get this track record for him to learn how to underwrite and do deals. Um, we are, are have essentially boots on the ground in another market. Um, so we're always looking for deals. We are, I mentioned that we're looking to, um, do some more direct to seller stuff. Um, so that's an area that we could use some assistance in, um, social media and, and, and is another thing, right? So, um, I'm not good with graphics. I don't know how to at video edit stuff. I mean, I'm sure I could figure it out, but like, I've got other things on my mind and I really don't have the time or the inclination to want to learn it. Right. Um, so anybody that could kind of help me out in that capacity, Um, if you've got deals, you don't know how to get them done, hit me up. We can use that too.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, Perfect.
2: So I know you
1: mentioned, uh, previously, but I guess we have one last question. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I know you mentioned your website, but if you want to say it again, and then your Instagram.
2: Yeah. So my Instagram is at real estate, Adam seven spelled out normally the number seven, um, And I have a a free resource for any of your audience um, that wants to learn more about uh, multifamily as a passive investment vehicle. Uh, The ebook is called um, The Rapid Millionaire Blueprint, How Time-Strapped Entrepreneurs Are Using Real Estate to Break Free. Um, Totally free, uh, but that can be found at investorboardroom.com forward slash freedom.
0: Well, Adam, we really appreciate you being on the show today, and we, you know, we took a good chunk of your Saturday, so um, it was really great to hear your story. I think our listeners are going to get a lot of value from this, so yeah. really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming thanks. on. Thanks so much, you guys, Adam. having me. Perfect
2: timing because the little one's about to wake up from her nap. So <laughs> well, there we go. All right, thanks, well, right. we'll enjoy the rest of your day, and we will talk to you very soon. Hayden, Austin, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. We hope you gain something from today's episode and put it into action right away.
1: Please make sure to share, subscribe, and review our podcast, as well as follow us on Instagram and TikTok at mulligans underscore underscore. This helps us to grow and share more great stories. My name is Austin Cole. I'm Hayden Wright, signing Signing off. off.